Hello and welcome to the third episode of Football Insiders podcast show, The Inside Track. I'm your host, Lewis Pears, and with me today, I'm joined by Football Insider editor Wayne Veazey and our very special guest, the former Everton and Aston Villa chief executive, Keith Wynus. In today's show, Keith reveals whether Everton's point deduction will be reduced on appeal. Toffees, we suggest you don't go anywhere for Keith's insight on what will happen here. How a mystery billionaire and not Farad Mashiri may really be pulling the strings at Everton and what the devastating point deduction really means for Man City and Chelsea. Keith has brilliant insight on Man City's astonishing legal team and how their approach will be very different to Mashiri's with Everton. We also have huge news on the Everton takeover and whether prospective owners 777 partners will actually be able to pass the Premier League owners and directors tests. How the new stadium is so extraordinary, even Tottenham fans may be jealous. And to wrap it all up, what the point deduction means for January transfers and potential big name exits, including the club's star player. Before we jump in, I'd really appreciate it if you hit that follow button on your podcast platform. And if you like what you hear, make sure to give our podcast a top review and a rating. This enables us to produce the very best possible show. Let's get straight into the episode. So Wayne, following on from last week with our episode, The Inside Track, of course, can you update us please on Everton's point deduction verdict and what's happening with the club at the moment? Yeah, I mean, Everton have said, have confirmed they're going to appeal again against the points deduction. And Sean Dyche has also spoken publicly for the first time since the commission's findings. And he's been um, sort of very critical of the severity of the punishment. And the, that process is now underway. And um, rival Premier League clubs have also launched um, a joint complaint as well um, for damages against Everton. So, you know, the... The, the ball is very much rolling on 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 all on all in all areas at the moment. And Keith, what was your instant reaction to the news, and sort of how has that changed over the last ten days as more information has come out? I was uh, surprised, like many people, at the severity of the punishment. Uh, the ten points just seems completely um, out of uh, out of scale in terms of the offences, especially when I read the actual um, submissions. And I think more importantly, up until um, until the hearing sort of uh, released its its findings, we had been told that the Premier League and Everton had been working together over a long period of time to try and resolve these issues. And so I was very surprised at the outcome um, when, I, when it did come out. Wow. I mean, that's that's big news, actually. And, you know, one thing that we discussed last week was obviously this is the same as what Portsmouth had when they went into administration. Keith, do you think 10 points is quite harsh? Because it seems to be that most Premier League fans are in agreement that actually this is a really, really difficult punishment for Everton to face, despite the fact they are appealing, of course. Yeah, look, I've been around football 20 years now and uh, I've seen draconian sort of punishments on different minor things before in many different cases in football, either from the FA, not so much from the Premier League, but mainly from the FA. And punishments that in a normal court of law in day-to-day would never, ever happen. And it seems to be that sometimes there is a a feeling that people have to sort of beat their chest and show off a bit about the power they have. And I think we're in a bit of that complex right now. It's quite interesting, Keith, wasn't it? Because the the Premier League were actually pushing for a 12-point deduction, um, an even an even stiffer punishment. That's kind of come out through through briefings to the media. Um, I mean, do you think Everton have been picked on a little bit here? I mean, they're not a club as big as 
um, the one on the other side is Stanley Park, they're not as big as Chelsea, Man City, who also um, got their own charges to deal with. So is it because they're our smaller club? Do you think that's an issue here? Um, look, I, I don't want to get carried away with that sort of train of thought. Um, I think the certainly the political environment right now about the independent regulator is i think something that is weighing on people's minds and there is there has been some sort of political um thought in mind about how the how that looks in terms of can the premier league run the game or not i believe that has played a factor uh but more importantly i think for me and looking at my time with uh, the premier league particularly when richard scudamore was the head i think scudamore would have found a way through this whole mess without getting to such a, a crucial uh, difficult position that we're in right now. He's unleashed what I consider to be a legal position. You've, you've mentioned already about the clubs that are going to be looking for compensation. There's now potentially the thought of Everton having to sue Man City and Chelsea if they get found. The whole thing becomes a legal merry-go-round. And if I'm a chief executive, I then have to look at probably 30% of my budget being spent on KCs rather than on a left back. Hmm. And that's taken the Premier League into a whole cycle of, uh, of real big issues. And I think Richard Masters has to be uh, very, you know, has to be looked at in terms of the way he's led the Premier League into this issue and not found a way through it. When I looked at the actual hearings, uh, the finding of the hearing, there was enough on both sides to have found a compromise way through. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And there could have been a, a different way to approach this. And I do think that, you know, for a financial penalty like this, it should have been a financial uh, fine. Uh, and that's to me would have been the correct way to have gone and also would not have led the Premier League into this spiral of legalese. It's quite interesting you say that there should not have been any points deduction at all. I mean, um, I mean, this this is kind of a high level case and I think the Premier League did slightly change their statute, didn't they, in, in October, shortly before um shortly before the commission commission findings were went public um so the premier league do have the opportunity to to go really big don't they with with their punishments um i mean was it was it a case of everton failing to represent themselves properly do you think and um five Mashiri, the owner i mean i i spoke last week on the on the podcast i mean i, I i've been told by senior sources he was absolutely slaughtered by the commission um and was was he part of the problem and how Everton represented themselves? Look, I've got no doubt he would have been slaughtered by the uh, commission. I think um, really he's, he, he hasn't got a leg to stand on in that case. And the fact that Everton had pleaded that they had not broken uh, the the barrier of um, the, the relevant threshold of 105 million and then amended their pleading to say they had um, was very confusing for me to have done that. Uh, and there's no doubt this comes from the top. Uh, and it just smacks to me of Mashiri either taking orders from third parties himself or not really handling the, the whole issue properly and being aware of the dangers that the spending cycle was going to bring when they had that splurge over three or four seasons. And of course, it's only about 48 hours now that Everton have to appeal. Keith, if you were the current CEO, what would you be saying or doing about this? Do you really think that Everton have a have a leg to stand on in this appeal? And actually, do you think it will be completely null and void? Because Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, thinks that this case should be null and void and it should be completely, completely eradicated. What are your opinions on that? 
Well, obviously, I'm not you know not a KC, but um, if I was chief executive just now, I would definitely be appealing. I think there are grounds about the way the judgment was was reached that would give you grounds for appeal. I think some of the uh, the findings uh, from the commission are very disputable, and uh, how they reached that uh, decision, I think, is key. And I, th- I think you know, with the I'd have to look at the legal team. I've got if I was chief executive right now, hypothetically. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'd be looking at the legal team that had done the first pleadings and looking at how there might be changes in my lineup for the uh, the appeal. Uh, and I think I'd be coming in as heavy as I could be. Uh, you mentioned Andy Burnham's uh, letter, which obviously raised some eyebrows with Sky not uh, taking his mm. interview as well on Sunday, which was which was really quite uh, concerning in some ways. Uh, and I think you know Andy makes a fair point about the process. And it's true. It seems to be that the Premier League is putting together on the run a new framework of punishments. And that is not the way it works. I mean, you have to have 20 votes within the Premier League and any new rules have to be voted through by the members. And they can't just be made up on the run by an independent commission. So I think there are grounds about process that should give an appeal a a fairly good chance. But as we said at the start, there is this political environment around this sort of thing that is going on that makes it an unusual case. I've been surprised at the public outcry and the strength of uh, feeling against the 10-point deduction. Um, so I think that helps as well because it does put pressure on the Premier League. But I think most of all, as I'll come back to my point, I really believe that Richard Masters and the new chairman uh, at the Premier League have led us down the route where it's a very dangerous situation where lawyers are starting to become uh, you know, the, the key factor in, in winning points rather than your left back or your centre half. It's just not the right way to run the football situation. And that's got to be rectified. I saw a, a Twitter post the other day from Nick DeMarco, mm. who's one of the leading legal KCs in the country in sports. And he showed a lunch where all the, uh, the legal side were, were all having lunch at a restaurant in London. And he said quite openly that all the sides of the Everton dispute were there in lunch together. Now, there's an appeal going on. Uh, is it right that they should be openly fraternizing in that sort of situation? Uh, it just it, it, it amazes me that, that things can be so open uh, when it's such a key part that's being, uh, you know, of a dispute. And as I say, I worry about going down the road of, of as I've said, of lawyers and the legalities becoming such an important part of the game. And what, what about, though, you know, you look at it from... Another point of view, Everton were warned many times about their overspending and about their um, financial management, certainly in terms of transfers. And I think they, I mean, the actual amount they overspent, 19 million over the three years, wasn't, wasn't huge, I suppose, but they were warned many times. Why, why didn't they rein it in? I mean, if you look at the commission's findings, um, Mashiri was, he was just complaining that his midfield wasn't good enough. He had no midfielders, which is just hilarious really isn't it i mean for someone who's um invested so much and being seemingly such a successful businessman to not just adapt his strategy as a result of warnings from the governing body wayne i completely agree and i'm not ever trying to say there is no blame on everton's side mm. i really believe that there was and i think you know Mashiri especially him not being a businessman, just that he's an accountant as well, yeah, um, yeah. which is, you know, I think even more, hilarious, isn't it? Yeah. even more important for these sort of views. Yeah. And there is no doubt. But what I would say is that 
when the Premier League worked with Everton to try and look at this, there was actually statements coming out saying that, yes, Everton, are, you know, we're working with them to make them comply. There was the Richarlison sale or some other big sales to make mm. things happen. Anthony Gordon, etc. And so the net spend over those years wasn't wasn't that big. But I look, Everton have already pleaded they've broken the uh, the hundred and five mm. you know rule. Mm. As you yeah. say, it's about six million a, a season. Hardly mm. you know the, the great train robbery, but still one pound over it is a, is a breach, and I, I accept yeah. that. So yes, I do think there is blame on the Everton side, but is you know and they should be punished. And I and I'm suggesting it should be a financial penalty for a financial mismanagement. Uh, and I'm just, you know, I'm not getting away from anywhere to say that Everton are blameless. In fact, you know, it really has been uh, frightening to see what's gone on. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that have come out subsequently, um, you know, former Everton executives offered to appear in front of the commission to represent the club and use their knowledge of the situation at the time, including former CEO Denise Barrett-Baxendale and the former finance director Grant English. I mean, this is information I, I was told and, and spoke about on the podcast last week. So why was Fahad Mashiri ignoring those offers? I mean, it just seems from the outside, it seems um, a ludicrous way to represent this club, doesn't it? Well, you're right. I and mean, that's what we're seeing from the outside. I obviously have no further knowledge of the time because I wasn't inside the club. At you've, the got, you've got friends at the club, I guess. Keith still um no, I would say I've got no no sources as such, but mm. what it does seem to me is that if Grant and Denise both left recently and mm. there were settlements made in terms of them leaving, so I don't know whether there was clauses in those contracts that would stop them from uh, doing anything more in terms of comments. I, I've no idea. Mm. But it also seems to me that there was um and this is my own supposition and my own opinion is that that Mashiri was not necessarily the one that was leading the whole uh, situation. I think there may have been others. Osmanov has always been the name that's been in the frame for that. Yeah, and I think that's where we might want to see, you know, a bit more information about what really went on in terms of decision making at that time and who was really calling the shots. And as I would stress that, I mean, that's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's quite interesting because I think former Everton managers, because Everton appointed many managers during the Mashiri era, have said that when they went to be interviewed, Osmanov um, would often be there in the background. I think Benitez is one of those who said that Usmanov was at, at his interview. So when you talk about someone pulling the strings and the real levers of power, um, it's someone who supposedly doesn't own, even own a share in the club. Well, that's you know always been the, the rumours that have been flying mm. around. Also that Usmanov was uh, listening to key agents more than he was to anybody else from the club. Mm. Uh, but again, I'd stress those are only rumours, but mm. they do seem to you know to make sense when you look at the mess that's gone on now in terms of the spending and if they were if the executive team were being overruled to a degree then that could have led to the sort of situation that we're in right now and if before we focus on man city and chelsea keith it'd be great to get your opinion on given everything going on with tottenham of course involving jermaine defoe's agent case could these two you know separate incidences both everton and tottenham then transpire across the league into effectively a snowball bringing up lots of different things that have happened over say the past 25 years is there a concern that actually this could happen like you've mentioned about the independent panel yeah i think there's a huge this is my big concern is that all of a sudden, everybody's suing everybody else, and the whole thing just descends into mm. a mess. Mm. Look, there are skeletons in football. It's not no big secret. Mm. There have been deals done and over the years that probably shouldn't have been done. Yeah, brown envelopes um, and everything else. 
yeah, look, it's it's look, it's been the soap opera of football. Mm. Um, and you know, it's there's no doubt that there could well be skeletons in probably every closet somewhere in, in football. So if that opens it all up and it starts to become a legal free-for-all, then we might as well just watch the court hearings rather than watch the match of the day. And it sounds like then Everton, you know, from, from Keith's perspective at least, that are, you know, are actually in quite a difficult position. Wayne, if you could just walk us through Manchester City's alleged charges alongside Chelsea and any potential updates that have come over the course of the last week with those. Yeah, I mean, Man City have defending 115 charges and um, dating all the way back to 2009. So it's um, it's a nearly, nearly a decade and a half. And that's that's about sort of um, third party third party payments to former managers like Mancini from offshore accounts. So that's slightly different to Everton's, um, but it's an even more detailed case. And sort of the latest from the Premier League is that this case might not be heard for two years or even three years because Man City keep appealing um, sort of it, to have it delayed, um, which seems completely wrong. I'm very interested to actually get Keith's view on that about sort of Man City can continue delaying the process, Keith. I mean, Everton must be sort of watch, well, not only watching this very closely, but also very concerned how a sort of seemingly more powerful club and sort of better lawyers club are able to get away with this look uh, you know I, somebody told me the other day i don't know how accurate it is but they said that man city have got about 30 in-house legal uh in the legal department wow which is a huge department how, how many did everton have when you were ceo we didn't even have an in-house lawyer when i was CEO. <laughs> wow yeah uh, and when i was at aston villa we had uh one lawyer and two assistants Wow. Uh, so that gives you some idea of the scale that we're talking about. So the threat, whether that number is accurate or not, as I say, I'm, I'm not mm. sure. I'm pretty sure that it's, it's a big department. Yeah. Now, obviously, the implied threat is there that we're going to tie you up in court and we can tie you up in court. Uh, whether you're UEFA, whether you're the Premier League, whether you're the FA, we're going to fight you to a standstill and, you know, cost you a bloody fortune. Mm. Uh, so that's the and that's what seems to have happened. They've, they've carried on tying things up. Um, now that's one strategy and, uh, look, you know, when you've got a, a wealthy backer behind it, maybe that's one way to go. Mm. Maybe if Mashiri had not, uh, if Usmanov had not been sanctioned and was able to help, uh, fund Mashiri, maybe there would have been a different legal team in place mm. for everything. Who knows? Uh, again, supposition, but, um, it does, you know, beg the question, why does it take so long? I know there are detailed cases, but surely you could have started picking off one by one. Uh, each of the charges in some way and got some sort of resolution. But again, I'm, I'm not party to the Premier League's knowledge and the uh, the charges. I mean, surely... Oh, go on, what you say? Yeah, I mean, Everton fans will be, you know, get, get you know very emotional, rightly so, and also angry about the punishment that Cos been given. They'll be thinking, well, Man City should be 50... If they're found guilty of these 115 charges, should be 50, 60 more points, you know, relegation. What we I mean... What, what would your view be on that, Keith? Well, I think it's a pretty dramatic sort of headline to talk about, you know, putting Man City into the National League or dropping them down <laughs> mm. leagues. Also, it did happen. Also, it did happen with the Rangers, obviously in Scotland. Yeah. Well. yeah. You know, so it it has happened. Um, and then you worry about things like would Abu Dhabi then have a word in the government's ear uh, and say, well, there's a by the way, this new uh, defence uh, contract we're thinking about, maybe mm. that won't happen. If this happens to Man City, 
it, you know, it, it goes on and on in terms of where this leads to now, which is why it should have been nipped in the bud and ways found to resolve this and, and warning shots across the bows could have been done a while ago rather than going the full route that we're going down right now with the legal situations. And Keith, what if you had to give an opinion then, if Everton get 10 points for one charge, what charge do you think Man City and Chelsea should face should their cases turn out to actually be true and, and accurate? I couldn't say because I don't know enough detail about the charges themselves. And all I've done is I've read the um, you know the leaked emails that were out at the time it would seem to be a serious breach. And so there's got to be, if, if they're going on the points deduction route. But then again, look, we, we've got to wait until the appeal as well, because until we know the final penalty that is that is given to Everton, then you don't really know what uh, the scale is going to be. My own opinion on the appeal is that there may well be um, a reduction, a considerable mm. reduction, and either suspended, it could well be a points deduction, but suspended. Uh, and then you'd have to look at then how that would um, sit against a Man City, um, you know, situation. So, yeah, yeah, I mean that's quite interesting. It's one of the things um, I was told by, by by a pretty good source last week was that the appeal was likely to reduce the deduction to around three to six points, um, which which might seem a, a fairer outcome. I mean, and you're talking about potentially suspended deduction that would be that would be a, a massive turnaround where where that to happen wouldn't it and completely sort of change the the climate in a way for this well it's in a funny way it's also man city and chelsea's interest to now put pressure to make sure yeah. that the uh the penalty gets yeah <laughs> gets <reduced. laughs> yeah yeah and you know one thing actually i wanted to to ask you keith because obviously we saw the the super league last year we saw the big Big six clubs, they all went behind it. The fine they were given, which basically would have meant abolition of the league as we know it, was 3.7 million per club, I believe, which is pretty much combine that together, which was pretty much how Everton, how much Everton overspent over those three seasons. Um, I mean, that seems astonishing, doesn't it? Looking back, that Everton are fined 10 points. These clubs who threatened to walk or tried to abolish the league as we know it. They then given a measly few well, million, which even wouldn't even so, have bought one of the left backs that you've been talking about. Even even more so, Wayne, when you look at the commission findings on Everton, and they said we didn't think a financial penalty was appropriate for a rich owner. Now, how does that <laughs> sit with the Super League situation when you give them a paltry slap on the wrist of three point seven million? And you know, you're absolutely right. It, it begs the question. So, again, you see what we found there was the Premier League stepped in found a way around it and managed to keep the thing, keep the lid on everything. Yeah, That's what they haven't done this time. Mm. And that's what I'm really disappointed that they haven't been able to find a way through this and keep a lid on it and still maintain some degree of authority. Uh, I don't think they, and it, it must've been the political environment around the independent regulator that's made them go so extreme. Because as you say, when you compare the Super League to this, it just makes no sense in terms of a comparison. No, absolutely not. Keith, from a footballing perspective on the pitch under Sean Dice, Dice, do you imagine that Everton are going to stay up? Will this really be a driving factor for them going forwards in the season? You'd, you'd certainly hope so. I mean, if there was to be a manager that you wanted in a situation like this, it would be Sean Dice. I have a huge amount of respect for him. Uh, I talked to him to try and get him to Aston Villa when I was there. Okay. Uh, and so I've got, I've got a very high opinion of Sean. Was that I when you were in the championship at Villa? Or was, was correct, that, yeah. yeah. That's when we were in the championship. And, uh, when Steve we Bruce was manager, was 
correct. Steve Bruce yeah. came in after Roberto Di Matteo. Yeah. And uh, we got into the playoff final with Steve the, the, the next season. Yeah. But, yeah, it was going to be either Steve or Sean, really, was what we were thinking at the time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think Sean is the right uh, one to go for it. But, look, injuries, who knows what's going to happen the rest of the season. Um, it's It's difficult to say. I mean, the games that Everton already lost at the start of this season, particularly against Luton, could come back to haunt us, you know, in a, in a big way. Mm. And so we've, we've really got to uh, be careful now and, and move forward. I'm also a little bit worried that the uh, the length of the appeal process will mean that no resolution will mm. change the whole mindset and mentality of not only Everton, but also the opponents. Yeah. Uh, you know, if suddenly the appeal takes to like the last game of the season and then nobody knows whether there's going to be another five points added or not, it's playing havoc with the mentality of games and how people are going to set up for different different matches. Yeah. And also it affects the integrity of the, the league itself, wouldn't it? It really does, because as I say, people are going to set up differently depending on the outcome they think they need to, to stay up or whatever. It's it's a really worrying situation the Premier League have forced themselves into for many, many different aspects. And Keith, if we look at it from a footballing perspective as well, you know, I think that game on the weekend, obviously, we saw the anti-Premier League protest at Goodison Park. Garnacho scored that out of this world goal. I think that really took the sting out of the game. Are you expecting then now, week on week, Evertonians to turn up and to keep protesting? Is this an ongoing thing you think is going to happen at grounds? Yeah, without doubt, it, it will do. Um, the Everton fans are fantastic for that sort of thing. I mean, I'm still very, very fond of the club and uh, mm. really enjoyed my time there. Unfortunately, I, I resigned on a matter of principle at the time when I when I was there, and that was a corporate governance issue. But uh, mm. maybe the, uh, the 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 previous uh, executive team should have resigned on a matter of principle as well. Would you go back now, Keith? Would you go back to Everton? You obviously still got, you know, you still love the club. Would you? Yeah, look, I would. I would love to go back and try and help them out of this mess. And um, it's obviously a difficult situation with the present uh, bid from seven seven seven, etc. Uh, and I think things are probably on a standstill while that negotiation is going on. But there's no doubt I'd do anything I could to try and help the club in any way. And uh, you know, it would be uh, an interesting time to try and do it. But I've, you know, I joined Villa when they'd just been relegated and I joined Everton the first time when it was in a complete mess and we just sold Wayne Rooney. Mm. And then we went on to have the most successful period this century for the club. So uh, hopefully we could we could turn things around. So how important is it to have that stability in the boardroom and from the senior management of the club as well, because it obviously is chaotic at Everton, um, particularly under Mashiri. And, you know, there's lots of stories you hear from sort of third parties about he doesn't really listen to his executive team. And that includes on recruitment. We've seen all that with some of the transfers over the, over the years. So, so having that stability at the club, was that absolutely vital to the success of the David Moyes era yeah it was i mean at that time it was myself bill kenwright and david Moyes, so just the three mm. of us that really ran the club and that worked very well wow. i think the issue with mashiri has been that he was spending at the time he was spending the money he didn't have the correct people in place to spend that amount of money that understood what it meant to, to buy and to to, to trade mm. and that sort of level of, of deal and he didn't have a strong enough executive team prepared to stand up and say the things against some of the decisions that were being made. And that's one thing that I, I did. I mean, I always spoke up. And as I say, in the end, I actually resigned uh, mm -hmm. over a point of principle. Uh, but that's something that, you know, Mishiri wanted to, you know, to run the club in a certain way. Um, some owners do, but it takes a, 
a strong executive team to do it. Now, now more than ever, it would take a strong chief executive to be there to stand up and to assist the manager and let him focus on the football side and to be a bit more visible in terms of the, the public and the fan base and to be a, you know, a, a central point that can take a lot of the pressure away from Sean Dyche. I mean, I saw in his recent press conference, straight away, Sean is becoming almost a spokesman for the club. Mm. And that shouldn't mm. be the case. Yeah, and you see that a lot, don't you, though, that Premier League yeah. clubs who are in, in, in these difficulties and the executives go missing, the owner goes yeah. missing. And it's so wrong. It's so wrong, isn't it? Because effectively, they're just a, a head coach, not even a manager sometimes. Um, yeah, correct. It's it's so wrong. And you know, it really is that the chief executive's role is important in these sort of situations, yeah. that you do stand up and you are the lightning rod that takes the criticism and, and handles that. Uh, but also you show the staff internally that you're there and yeah. that you're standing up to issues and that there's a clear way forward and you're doing the very best. But at least you meant, you, know, you talk about it openly and uh, lead the staff rather than just sitting there. You, I think it's you, mentioned, you mentioned the, the takeover, Keith, and, you know, that's obviously made, made things difficult to kind of run the club at the moment. Lots of things are up in the end. The potential value of the club could be changing as a result of the points deduction or there could be clauses built into the deal. Um, what 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 are your thoughts on the takeover? Do you think 777 is the right future owner for Everton? Again, I'm going on what I've read in the media um, and I have no inside knowledge at all, but it does seem there are some pretty severe question marks on 777. The interesting point is that the owners and directors test has now been changed to also include the Financial Conduct Authority. Mm. And I think that is the area where 777 may have issues in terms of getting past the uh, the FCA. Uh, oh, so you, I mean, you think it could collapse then? I think there's a possibility they may not get a, get approval. Wow. Um, yeah, and that would be a, a major issue. Um, now, again, you've got the Premier League who are having to look at, you know, are they partly the cause of this this <laughs> this breakdown with such a big penalty? Mm. Um, and again, you know, what sort of lawsuits could come from shareholders then? Uh, there's all sorts of imponderables that could, that can go on. But I do think that the um, the seven 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 issues, particularly in North America, their business model, yeah. um, do give certainly some questions that need to be answered fully. Uh, they may well be being answered fully, and it may well go through. But I do have some, you know, some doubts at the moment. And why is that? Is that yeah. sorry, Lewis? Is that because of the 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 loans and because of the the credit history of the of the deals they they're being involved with? Yeah, it's mainly to do with the way they financed a lot of the deals in the past, and also mm -hmm. some of the legal challenges they face in the states. Um, I think that those are the key areas. Certainly, the strength of financing and the solidity of the financing and the way they've handled certain deals. And whether, in fact, is there enough money to do the Everton deal uh, that's already, you know, it can be shown clearly where it sits and where it's from. Uh, those are the key issues that the Premier League and uh, the FCA will be looking at. And they will want clear sight of the funds that are being promised. And I don't know if 7-7 can do that. I hope they can. I mean, the one question really I have, Keith, now following all of that is that 
if the deal does fall through, how concerned are you for the trajectory of the future at the club? I mean, it's quite clear that Mashiri does want to sell. If 7-7 partners can't take over, what does that mean? Is Mashiri actually going to have to effectively temporarily invest back into the squad? Because it seems to be that he's effectively handed the keys over. And, it, it, you know, we were thinking that 7-7 were going to take over. Now, of course, there are all these question marks that have been raised. Well, whether Mashiri can actually reinvest is interesting. Yeah. Uh I don't know if he's now, you say he's given the keys back. Maybe that's because he has no more to give. Um, that's, you know, that's one line of thought. What I think could be interesting is that one of the issues that has caused a lot of the problems, of course, is the cost of the new stadium, which is a superb, superb facility. Mm. It may well be that that stadium ends up saving Everton in, in a way because there'll be groups out there. And I know there are still groups out there who are interested in the club and the stadium asset in particular. So I do think there would be last minute, you know, you know deals to be done. Uh, I mean, I experienced this at Aston Villa and there was, uh, when we reached issues with the lack of funding that came from the Chinese owner, Yeah, uh, that because it was such a quality asset, there were always good buyers out there. And I think Everton will be the same, particularly with the new stadium. So I think there'll be some, very, very scary moments, but I think in the end, it may work out that there'll be a very good owner will come out of the woodwork. That's my hope, at least. So if there's so many, I mean, a lot of Everton fans will be listening to this going, well, if there's so many quality buyers out there, how are we ending up with um, 777, who might not even pass the Premier League's owners and directors test? Because a lot of the very seriously well-qualified buyers will sit and watch and uh, and wait and then try and get something at a, a lower uh, a lower mm. price mm. uh you know that's how they've become very successful yeah uh, and so that's something that i think may be uh the, the case particularly the american investors mm. uh a lot of them will sit and wait there's no need to rush in uh i mean why would you at the moment there's with the, t the 10 points issue the whole seven seven issue uh, why would you, you know, you'd, you'd, if you were sensible, you'd sit back and you'd wait and see what develops. I read as well that apparently Sean Dyche is holding holding off con another contract extension because of everything going on sort of behind the scenes. Keith, and another question for you. You know, I think this sort of relates in a way to when West Ham moved to London Stadium. My only concern, I think, for Everton from my perspective with moving grounds, although you say it might save them certainly from a financial perspective, isn't that on the pitch then there is then this air of expectation going into the season, whether they move in, you know, in the latter stages of 2024 and the season begins or they hold out and have one final season at Goodison Park and then move in for the following season isn't there some concern of, of everything going on at the club and the potential of moving into a stadium with everything going on behind the scenes surely that must sort of raise some eyebrows well it's it's a reality though it's, that's where we're at there's a, a new stadium being built that can't be put on hold for the next three or four years and let things calm down i mean it's just it's just the the, the pack of cards that you've been dealt at the moment so uh you know that's we've got to get on with it the stadium itself i mean you mentioned about the london stadium this is chalk and cheese in terms of a football uh, quality of experience in terms of the new stadium compared to the London Stadium. London Stadium was always, you know, an Olympic stadium built for athletics. This is a genuinely probably going to be the best football type stadium in 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 the world. Uh, the design has been incredible. The architect's done a great job, and I think it will enhance. I think there's going to be significant uplift in revenue for uh, for Everton, you know, with the new stadium, of course, provided they're in the Premier League. So what, what what kind of revenues are we looking at, Keith? I think at the moment, you know, they're 
um, about 100, 180 million turnover a year. You know, could we could they be reaching potentially Tottenham levels of revenue? I mean, you're talking about the stadium being better than Tottenham's, yeah. No, I don't think you'll ever be able to reach Tottenham just purely because the London factor and the mm. the London waiting in terms of hospitality prices, etc. Mm. But I think you could see an uplift of uh, you know maybe twenty five percent, something of those sort of areas. Um, and what it would do, I think, and let's not get carried away with what it will do, but it would keep Everton in like the top eight of revenue yeah. earners. Uh, it wouldn't catapult them to the top, but it would keep them there. Now without it staying at Goodison, you're going to just fall further and further and further behind. So this is important to keep Everton up there in the top level. Is there any feeling, though, of the bit, you know, bittersweetness, Keith? Because, of course, it reminds you as well when Brentford fans moved from Griffin Park to now the GTEC Community Stadium. When you talk to them, they're, they are always so fond of the ground. Do you think Evertonians really feel the same about Goodison? Are there any fans that are actually sort of questioning the move despite it going ahead? Yeah, look, of course there are. I mean, in my time, I also looked at another grand move to uh, to Kirby mm-hmm. and I had death threats, all sorts of issues because fans loved Goodison and I understood that. And the thing was, though, Goodison, is a, it's a fantastic atmosphere, everybody knows, but the reality is, uh, I mean, the kitchens were built that not to service hospitality. We've only got 12 boxes. Uh, you know, you're behind pillars most of the time or a roof is blocking your view. The, the whole facility isn't it just is not fit for purpose for a Premier League, despite the fact it delivers an amazing match day feeling and atmosphere, as we saw last Sunday. Um, but it's not fit for purpose in the present Premier League and the very important commercial environment and you know, commercial factors that have to be taken into account. So I think there will be very fond memories going right back to the you know the many many years ago. Um, of course, Anfield was the first stadium. Um, people shouldn't forget that. So now we'll actually have owned all three stadiums in Liverpool at one stage. <laughs> Which and is quite, quite when, when you were looking at buying that stadium in during your reign as chief executive in the two, 2004, I think it was to 2009. Yeah. Why did that deal fall through? Was it, was it due to funding, Keith, at the time? Well, at th- that time, we didn't have a rich benefactor. Uh, mm. as such. And so we had found a way with a property development uh, that was going to happen in Kirby to find the money to, to bridge the gap to fund the stadium. So we had found a funding solution. Uh, however, if you remember, in 2008, we hit the financial crisis. Yeah. And uh, at that time, the, the potential funder said, look, this isn't going to work for us. And so when it went into, uh, it got called in, is what they call it, for planning uh, approval. And they made the right noises to say, well, sorry, we're not going to be able to support this fully. And so it, it failed the planning uh, call-in hearing at that time. So in hindsight, you know, it was not the perfect solution, but it was the only one that we could have found that was feasible at the time to have done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one be- previous before that was King's Dock, which was another one down on the docks that should have happened. Uh, and I was just trying my best to try and uh, find a solution to get through and improve the revenues that Goodison were giving us. Um, and in many ways, I suppose I'm quite pleased that it fell through and that we're now at the Bramley Moore situation. So that'd be your favourite one, because of course, Mashiri did fund half of this stadium build. So out of the three locations you've said, Keith, you think that Bramley Moore actually is, is the best option to build Everton Stadium? I think the first one, King's Dock, would have been the, still the best one, but certainly Bramley Moor is, is a very, very close second. And in terms of technology and the improvements, it'll probably even nose ahead now. 
uh, just Kingstock for location would have been good. It was just mm -hmm. a simple walk from the city centre. Um, but Bramley Moor is 15 minutes, 20 minutes, so it's it's no big deal, really. Uh, I think we're very lucky. When I looked at that area in my time, Peel Holdings, who owned the land, were not prepared to look at uh, selling and opening a stadium at that time either. So uh, it was a no-go for us. I mean, we looked at, if I remember, 36 different sites, uh, and uh, we ended up where we, where we did. But uh, it's a complex thing trying to build a stadium for a football club. So many different factors. And, of course, the fan base is the crucial one that has to also go along with it. We did go to a public vote um, with the season ticket holders, and they approved the move to Kirby. Um, but, you know, as I say, it didn't happen in the end. And if you had to rate Mashiri's time at the club out of 10, you know, factoring in everything going on at the moment, all of the man the eight managers that, you know, have been in since 2016, the half a billion pounds plus spent in his time, what would you give him and why? Oh, feels like Strictly Come Dancing. Um, <laughs> Get the voting boards out. Yeah, exactly. Well, look. You can stadium... throw Gravel Hallward and go with a really, <laughs> yeah. really low vote. Yeah, for, for the stadium, I'd give him a 10. On the football side, probably about a, a one or a two. Oh, that's uh, very generous. I'd, I'd give him yeah, I think that is, it probably is generous. It probably is generous. Yeah. Uh, but there's no doubt the legacy is the stadium. I think there are so many issues around the football side. I mean, you're right. I could go on. and It, it probably is generous with a one or a two. Um, why, why is he so... Why has he got so many decisions wrong? Is it just because he's... Like he's got agents in his ear, and um, Kid Rabchin obviously one's one name that's constantly been mentioned when there was the the huge spend on players um, in consecutive transfer windows. Is it just because he doesn't listen to the experts? I mean, I know of sort of Everton scouts and Everton recruitment members of the Everton recruitment team. They've basically said he doesn't listen to us. So, is that the main problem? Lack of sort of football expertise. I really believe that was and not listening to the correct people, but also mm. was he really making the right decisions? As I mentioned earlier, was he the right, well, sorry, was he making the decisions? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I would still want to know more about. Um, it's, it's one of those tragic things that you've seen, you know, when I was with Moyes and, and Ken Wright at that time, we were, you know, I think I broke the transfer record three times. Now, if you think about this, one was 6 million for James Beattie. <laughs> I think one was 10 million for Andy Johnson and then 11 million for Yakubu. That was breaking wow. the transfer record mm. at that time. We mm. were living with, you know, on a shoestring in terms of things and getting it right. We were dreaming of having these sorts of money to spend. And, uh, you know, it just amazes me that when that money came, it was, you know, flitted away in, the, in such a, a bad way. I'd be interested to know your view on which particular deals really stood out at the time as really bad in terms of the the signings of the last six, seven years under Mashiri, particularly when he was spending really heavily. At the time, did you think, oh, my word, that player's not worth that amount of money? Yeah, look, there's a number. I, I won't go through them all, but it was just the general trend of the age of players he was buying was the most worrying thing to me and the length of contracts and the size of contracts. So there was just a complete short-term thinking that was never going to work uh, and mm. the managerial choices as well um, it just and lack of stability and just you know having the look of somebody who agrees with the last person he spoke to um, mm. sort of way that the whole thing was managed so uh, I won't go through that you know because those players you know it's it's different for them because 
they have to fit in certain squads and under under different managers. So I think it's unfair to pick out those. But it was that general trend of not buying young talent properly and having a cohesive strategic plan with the right people to look at it three or four years down the road. But saying that though, Keith, when you look at some of the managerial names, if, if we lift off a few, you know, you've got the likes of Roberto Martinez, Marco Silva, Carlo Ancelotti, Rafa Benitez. There are some huge, huge names in there alongside the signings they've made. Why didn't it work from that perspective as well? I think it's not only the signings they brought in, but it seemed to be for managers that it was just one after the next. And every season people would joke and say, I wonder who's going to be in charge of Goodison going into the following season. Why, why didn't that work from that perspective? Well, I, th- I think you do need to, you know, there are certain managers that fit certain clubs. And uh, uh, we mentioned Sean Dyche being the right sort of manager for right now for Everton. I never thought that Ronald Koeman was ever a fit for Everton. I never thought Carlo Ancelotti would ever be a fit for Everton. And I certainly knew that Rafa Benitez was never a fit for Everton. Mm. So, and I'd had public spats with Rafa back in the day when he called Everton a small club. And so there was no love lost there. But I never, I knew that there was also going to be a big problem with the fan base. And it was never mm. going to work. Should he have persevered longer with Marco Silva and uh, and uh, Roberto, uh, Marti- Roberto Martinez? Possibly. And I think that's probably what I'd have tried to have done. I mean, in my time, I mean, Moyes lasted 11 years at Everton. And that mm. stability paid dividends. Yeah. And I still believe that managerial stability is one of the key things you should be aiming for. And so... Again, there was knee-jerk reactions from a new owner who was not experienced in football, wasn't listening enough to being told what to do and to get through a rough time and get back up there with the, the same manager. And so I think those, you know, the, the merry-go-round of managers is a, was a crucial uh, factor in the, the problems that we've uh, we've ended up in. And Keith, from a January signings perspective, I mean, given all the issues off the pitch, you know, and especially when we look at last season too, the fact that no signings were brought in other than Dan Juma on loan. Are you expecting a similar thing going into this window? Do you reckon there'll be no signings going in, in the door in Goodison? I don't expect much activity at all. Um, hopefully there's not much going the other way is what the, uh, you know, there's already rumours about some of the younger talent at Everton being taken away now. I hope that doesn't happen. Mm. Um Again, a period of stability would be nice and to let Sean operate. He's proven that, uh, to me anyway, he can uh, get the team working together as a cohesive unit and uh, give them a chance to have a settled squad would be good. Yeah. You you mentioned potential departures. I mean, if Everton do get caught up in a relegation battle and it's very possible and this appeal doesn't get heard until the season has finished, Everton, let's say, doomsday scenario... They are relegated. There will be um, a queue of players trying to get out the exit door. You can th- you think of Jordan Pickford, think of Dominic Calvert-Learn, the, the, the prize assets. They won't be playing the championship next season, will they? Well, that's a very interesting point you raise, Wayne, because, you know, look at this scenario that, as you say, people like, OK, let's take Jordan as an example. He's going to be looking at will the appeal be successful or not? Will we stay up? We may not know that appeal until very late uh, towards the end of the season he may decide on the basis of not knowing that that he's going to want to make a move and his, he and his agent may decide that they wanted to make that move whereas if he knew that the appeal was going to be successful they may not move yeah. so this you know this penalty goes way beyond in terms of what it penalizes the club with mm-hmm. and the integrity of everything that's going on right now so it's it's so dangerous and uh, you know the ramifications that come through and the ripples that go on beyond just the 10 points uh, you're absolutely you know it creates an environment of uncertainty that is damaging and uh, you know is it's really unfair
I think the million dollar question, Keith, that all Evertonians will be asking is, you were in charge 2004 to 2009, had a remarkably successful spell in between then. How did the club get back to that sort of period where they once were? How, do they, how are they going to rise to glory again? Is it going through the tactic of having a smaller team and recruiting in a different way? What's your overall opinion? How, how do they get back to where they once were? Yeah, look, stability uh, is the key thing. I think, actually, we're, we're, we're not far away from having a platform to build on. And if we did have that success, we managed to get some st financial stability and everything cleaned up. Then next season at Goodison, there's a launching pad into the new stadium. Then the financial stability will come even more. And so we're not far away from having that platform to go with it. But there's still so many off-the-pitch distractions to be resolved. Mm. Uh, we're a long way from getting there yet. But on the football side, I think it's not that far away to see where we can try and get to. Uh, Kevin Thelwell's done a, a, good, a decent job in terms of moving that forward with, with Sean Dyche. And so there is the sort of the emerging of a platform uh, to go from. So it isn't impossible, uh, but it's the off-pitch distractions that have to be resolved. Talking of recruitment, Keith, can you tell us the story about the Raquel May transfer saga that went on at Everton during your time at the club? <laughs> Not really. I mean, there was, <laughs> I mean there, there, was, there was genuine interest from his agent who was saying he wanted to come over and we were interested in taking him. And uh, it became a myth uh, more than anything else. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, th there were certainly discussions. We were keen for him to come. David Moyes was, was quite happy to, uh, to talk and to take him. Mm. Uh, but in the end, the agent didn't deliver what we were being promised. Was there any other deals that nearly happened, like any other sort of superstars or future superstars who came really close to joining Everton during that time? None that I would uh, be able to talk about really because there were, certain, there were a few um, that we came close. But you've got to remember, dealing with David as the manager, he was very thorough in... Um, he wasn't one to just go on, you know... I fancy this player and go and decide to get him. He'd go and watch him five or six times and he was always very thorough that way. So there was never any real situations where we kept getting offered players and we would just say, oh, a bit of stardust, let's go for that. Hmm. Uh, we did it a lot more methodical way at that time and that proved to be uh, at least one way to success. I mean, look, you look at the team that we had at the time, I mean, you know, the Artetas, the Cahills, the Lee Carsleys, the, uh, the Tommy Gravisons, uh, the Alan Stubbs and David Weir have all gone on to do great things. And, uh, you know, it was a, a team of good individuals. So we put together a team and that was important. And could, could, who you was your... David, could you see David back at Everton as manager? Yeah, I thought he would have gone back, um, you know, before. Um, but, you know, never say never in football. Well, he's out of contract then the season, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah well, I think, I think it'd be difficult to go past what Sean is doing right now. I don't think there'd be mm. uh, a chance for that. I think before Sean had come in, then possibly that would have been the time. But now, you know, things change. Look, you never say never, as I say. Uh, things can happen. But um, I know he loved the club. He cares about the club. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. But I think Sean is doing a fabulous job. And who was your favourite signing from the era, Keith? If you had to pick one player, who was a player that stood out for you and said, you know what, he was the man? Probably Mikel, uh, Mikel Arteta, I think. I was very proud of that. We, we had a good negotiation with his agent. It was a tough one. Uh, but we got him, and uh, he was great. My favourite probably player for the time was Tommy Gravison. Uh, I ended up selling him to Real Madrid. 
And I remember going across to see Tommy play at Real Madrid and I went to the players' lounge afterwards to see him. And I said, look, Tommy, uh, you know, how are you enjoying it here? He says, Keith, this is fantastic. He says, it's 90% show business, 10% football. So uh, Tommy was a great character. Uh, but yeah, it was, there was a great squad and uh, the club really got together and was united and everything worked. And that's what happens when you can really work as a, as a group with a strong leadership and, and move it on. And how did you identify so many underrated talents? Because your transfer strategy, Keith, I describe in a similar way as someone like Brighton now, where you seem to make really, really smart deals. You brought in these players who went on to shine. You know, the likes of Louis Zaha, Tim Howard, Leighton Bain, Stephen Pienaar. There are some absolutely huge names in there. What was the transfer strategy at the time with David? Well, there was no sporting director at that time. Of course, that wasn't really a position that was uh, was really active. And so it was David and his own connections. And he deserves all the credit for putting together the squad. I mean, he would pick the players and then uh, talk it through with Bill. I'd be the one that would have to negotiate or, Bill, or with Bill. We would negotiate together as a tag team, get the deal across the line. But David was responsible for, you know, major... You know, the selection mainly of the players bill and i would have a, a you know an influence and we'd suggest or ask questions about certain ones but we'd rarely go against him and so he deserves the full credit for putting that group together and to wrap up keith who was the hardest deal or the hardest person to negotiate with which deal felt like it went on and on and on <sighs> probably daniel levy no surprise oh, <laughs> no surprise daniel levy yeah. probably um I think it was Simon Davis was one deal that we did that seemed to go on forever. Um, probably Daniel, yeah, was probably the hardest. And, and the uh, Davis deal wasn't even particularly big money either, was it? Correct, correct. Uh, it was just, it, it just became difficult uh, in terms of the mm. negotiation. Yeah. Um, but overall, at that time, I mean, football was uh, pretty different. You, we knew everybody at the other clubs. We had a, all had a, a good network. People understood how each other negotiated, and uh, there was always a feeling of, you know, look, okay, we'll we'll get the deals done because I'm going to be asking you for a favour at some time down the road. So it worked well. Scudamore led the Premier League very well. We saw the growth and the broadcasting, the whole product in the Premier League, and uh, it was an interesting time. And there's a lot though that could still, as I say, that could still be relevant for today about putting the product first rather than getting too carried away about power and uh, and influence. And what was your proudest moment at the club over those years? I wish I could say it was the uh, the, the Champions League. I mean, certainly the qualification for the Champions League was was great. But then we had the disaster at Villarreal with Kalina as the referee. Mm. And that one still sticks in my throat. Probably my whole life would have been different if that goal had been allowed. Mm. Um, but certainly, I think that that season when I came in, I was announced at an extraordinary general meeting, not an AGM, an extraordinary general meeting when everybody was up in arms. The shareholders were going mad. It was like 400 angry Liverpool dockers wanting my, my blood. As I was announced as chief executive, they just sold Wayne Rooney and uh, we turned the club round that season. We, we really did turn it round. It was on the intensive care list with the bank. I was able to stabilise the whole thing, get the club moving again and uh, very proud of what we did that season. So that was a, a great memory in football. 
That was absolutely fascinating. So much gossip and exclusive music across a range of subjects today. Thanks very much to both Wayne Beasy and Keith Minus for their expert analysis and detail on all the stories, alongside some throwback features, including Mikel Arteta and Tommy Gravenson. If you have enjoyed this podcast episode, please give it a share on social media wherever you can. And any clips you see on YouTube, make sure to give us a like and a comment, as well as subscribing to the channel. I'm Lewis Pears, and we'll speak to you all on the next show here on the Inside Track. Track.